If you have your Bibles, please open it to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 19 to 30 will be the text this morning. Philippians chapter 2, verse 19 to 30. Philippians 2, verse 19 to 30. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel, like a child serving his father. Therefore I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and my fellow worker and my fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need. Because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him only, but also on me so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I've sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I, be, and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him, then, in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. I remember early this year when my wife and I visited SF Bible. I wasn't candidating at the time. Uh, the elders at Grace told me to just go visit SF Bible. See if you enjoy going there. Would you be willing to raise your family there one day? And I remember Kelly and I sat on this side of the room and Pastor Henry preached a sermon on his goals for San Francisco Bible. Uh, he was preaching on uh, the five different things that he wants this church to, to grow in and to mature in to, and to be able to be used by God. And one of them in particular was that he wanted this church to be like the church of Antioch and that we are not just a church that gathers together, but we're also sending people all over the world. And at the time when I was visiting, I developed a little crush for SFBC because of it, because it allowed me to see that this church is not just a church that's focused on inward and in terms of just uh, worshiping together, but then you guys have a heart for those outside of these walls. And as a pastor of outreach, that's my hope. It's to help us all be equipped, to be better equipped, so that we can be like the Church of Antioch. So that we can not only be people that are supporting missionaries all over the world, but we're also sending missionaries. And my hope is to accomplish that through just studying this text. Obviously, this is a vast topic, but there's a lot to learn from this text. And my hope for us today is to see how God can use us in extraordinary ways if we're just faithful with the ordinary task. 
If we want to be used by God mightily, we need to be faithful with what God has given us now. This, is this chapter here in Philippians, actually the whole book of Philippians, was written during Paul's first Roman imprisonment. Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and this letter were known as the prison epistles. And the reason why that is is because Paul was in prison when he wrote this. Uh, and he, was, he, was at, uh, he was stuck in a prison, and there was no certainty of when he was going to get out. Uh, we know later in the book of Acts that he actually does, but at the time being, he did not know. Uh, this church, the church of Philippi, uh, was a small church. It was a church that was a small population. In Acts 16, you can see how the church came about. Uh, Paul met uh, these ladies. He evangelized to them. They get saved, and then it's through their home that they built this church. Uh, this church has a unique relationship with Paul in that sense. The church went faithfully and had a deep love for Paul and his ministry. Paul was faithful in evangelism and growing the church and developing the leaders in the church. And this chapter here begins by showing the humility of Christ. The chapter begins by showing us who Jesus is, that Jesus Christ humbled himself to become a human to the point of obedience to, to, the point of obedience to death on the cross. And it's, it's through Jesus' life that we have a template of what to do and how to live our life. Christ humbled himself, so we need to humble ourselves. Christ served others, and we need to serve others. It is in light of Christ's humility that we are called to do all things without grumbling, so that we can be above reproach in light of a non-believing world. Paul here talks about his own suffering. He goes from the greater, going the greatest, which is Jesus, to himself, which is an apostle. He's going from the greater to the less. He's showing that he himself, out of understanding who Jesus is, humbled his own life, that he was willing to give up his life as a drink offering. He poured himself his own life out to service to the Lord. He did it joyfully because he knew that his Savior was willing to come down and humble himself for all of humanity. So when we get to this portion of the text, when we get to verse 19 to 30, Paul shows the two ordinary servants, two people that are not apostles and not God. He's just showing us just faithful men that are faithfully serving the Lord, and the Lord used them in a mighty way. So this part of the text, Paul describes two ordinary servants that are completely sold out for Christ. These two risked their lives for the advancement of the gospel, and these two were ordinary servants that were used by God in an extraordinary way. So how we're going to go through this text this morning is this. We're going to walk through the text, and I'm just going to show you the portrait of both the ordinary servants. And afterwards, we'll draw some applications for ourselves to think about throughout the week. So first, we're going to just look at the portrait of these two, and then we'll, draw from, we'll think through some applications. So the first ordinary servant is Timothy. Look at verse 19. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. Timothy was a faithful servant of the church. Uh, if you read 2 Timothy 1, you'll know that Timothy grew up in the church in the sense that he grew up knowing God's word. He, his mom taught him God's word, and his grandmother taught him God's word. Uh, he's, he's like a church kid. Um, but yet, it's through, his faithful teaching, through their faithful teaching that Paul used the foundation that they laid so that he can use them for ministry. Uh, Paul hopes in sending Timothy. Paul was unsure what will happen to him. There was no insurance at the time. Again, we know later in Acts that he does 
get released and he does uh, go and travel other places. And this is a good general principle that he hopes in the Lord, that he trusts in God's sovereignty in light of all ministry. Remember, this is a time when there was no such thing as Facebook and cell phones. And I know young people are like, that's not possible. But yes, this is a time when there was no such thing as Facebook and cell phones. So then the only way in which they can communicate with one another is sending these letters. In fact, the whole book of Philippians is that letter that they would use. Uh, they would, they, Paul would write this letter, he'll give it to someone, and then that, that person will travel back to church, and that's how he, they would know how Paul is doing. And then that person will go back, and they'll go back and forth. It's, it's like, that's the only way for them to communicate back then. Uh, Paul uh, couldn't go by himself, so he sent others to go for him. One year, when I was in college, I uh, went on a short-term ministry trip to Albania, and uh, I didn't know about this when I went on a trip, but the missionary there was someone was discipled by the same person that I was discipled. So he was discipled in like the 80s, and I was discipled in a few years ago. So he was like the first or second generation of that discipleship group, and I was the fifth or sixth generation. And it was great just to fellowship with him to see what are the things that we learned you know, like we, we were just encouraged by the things that he taught us, the biblical principles and they, the ways to think about life and think through life biblically. And we would just share about all the things that we've learned from this one individual. And this missionary would ask me, you know, how is he doing? And I would share about how you know, he's doing well, he's still doing, clearly still doing discipleship, and uh, he's just maybe struggling with these things, but he's doing well overall. And he, he gets encouraged to hear how the Lord is still using this person in our, in our old church. This is what I imagine the Apostle Paul uh, is doing, what the Apostle Paul is like when he sends Timothy to the Philippian church. He's sending him so he can know the condition of the church, so he knows how they're doing, how the Lord is growing them, how the Lord is maturing them, how the Lord is using them uh, since he last saw them. Look at verse 20, 20. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. Paul is not saying that there was no one else that cared about the Philippian church. Rather, there is no one else like Timothy that had the same type of concern for the Philippian church. This word kindred spirit is literally means one soul. In our modern day vernacular, it would be like describing someone of the same mind. Or maybe for us of Bible, it's like seeing the twins, you know, Fong and John. They are identical in the way that they look. They sound the same. They even carry the same Bibles. So when you look at them, you think, oh, they are of kindred spirits. They are of one soul. <laughs> That's what I imagine Paul and Timothy like, except they don't look alike. But their demeanor is the same. They have this genuine concern for the church. Uh, this word genuine concern is a strong word. Uh, they care so much about this church that it became almost like a burden to them. It's a pressure of anxiety that grows out of a true concern for the welfare of others. This does not mean a person cannot, have, cannot be concerned for things, but that the genuine care for others is not a sin. Rather than wanting uh, what's best for themselves, these two wanted what's best for the church. Timothy cared about the church just like Paul cared. And Timothy had the same heart and mind as Paul. So sending Timothy... Will be, just, will be just as good as sending Paul. Timothy knew the mind of Paul. He knew exactly how to shepherd them. He knew the people well. He knew how, what Paul would say in different counseling situations. So Timothy's presence is just as good as Paul being there. 
verse 21. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ. There were some people who knew that, uh, who, some people that Paul knew that sought after their own interests. They have their own agenda in mind when it comes to ministry. It's unknown exactly who those specific people are, but Philippians 1 kind of gives us an idea that there were some people that would share the gospel, not because they cared, per se, about the other people, but they just did it out of self-interest. And yet Paul was so thankful for that because they, at least the gospel is being proclaimed. And it could be this group of people, it's unknown, but there are some people that Paul knows that are not interested in the things of Christ. And we will look at our own lives we cannot expect to be used by God if we are always self-seeking. If our church wants to, be, wants to grow and be used by God in a mighty way, we must not be self-seeking in our intentions. So what does that look like in our own life? What does self-seeking look like? Well, it could be we only serve if we're comfortable. I'll only serve in this particular ministry if they're with a particular demographic and with the people that I like. If, if those conditions are not met, then I'm not going to serve. That's, self, that's self-seeking. You only serve if you're comfortable. For some, we serve because they're, you gain recognition. I want other people to see what I am capable of. I want to only serve in a ministry where people can see me. If there's anything behind the scenes, I don't want to do it. Well, that's a selfish type of pride. And that's self-seeking. And there are those who, see, who only serve, they could get something out of it. It's like, oh, is, is so-and-so going to be there? I want to serve so that that person can ask me out. Or, oh, is that girl there? I will only serve so I can see that person serve, and I know, oh, I want to marry that person. <laughs> That's self-seeking. That's putting your own desires, your own interests, above the interests of the Lord's. And we can all fall into that temptation. We can all fall into the self-seeking mentality in ministry. This is why we need to constantly pray and ask the Lord to change our hearts so we can do some self-evaluation. It is a danger in every ministry if we only serve without the interests of Christ in mind. If SFBC wants to be used by God, our focus must be on God. We must be Christ-focused. Ministry is not, not, not focused on quid pro quo. We're not doing ministry for, with the hope of something to get to, to get something in return. We do all things for the glory of God, and we do all things for him. Ministry is about being Christ-like to, the, to others, both inside and out the church. The end game for all Christians is to glorify Christ with our life. And both Paul and Timothy understood that. They served Christians because they had the church's best interests in mind. Look at how Paul views Timothy, verse 22. But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. There's this word proven worth. Uh, back then and even now, one way that they could get metals to as pure as form is that they'll put it in like a giant pot and they'll light it on fire and it'll melt. And when it melts, all the impurities will go up and they'll scoop those off. That's, a, that's the idea. Timothy went through the fire. Timothy is someone that who, who, who went through different trials and he, and he became above reproach. He went through different things in his life, and so he proved, he's someone with proven character. And not only someone with moral character, uh, but he's also proven his worth in terms of his doctrine. He fought against false teachers alongside Paul. He went against uh, different teaching, and he was able to reason from Scripture why 
false teachers are false. So both in terms of moral uh, worth and, and doctrinal worth, Timothy has proven himself. Paul and Timothy were like-minded in doctrine and in lifestyle. Timothy is described as someone who serves with Paul with the purpose and intent for gospel ministry and for the gospel to move forward. Oftentimes, the Lord will give us opportunities to serve in greater capacities when we're faithful with the smaller things. The Lord will give us ministry, more ministry when we're faithful with the little things in life. I remember in seminary, and that's one of the dangers of seminary, when we ask new students that are coming in, we generally ask them, what are they doing now at the church? What were they doing before they came to seminary? And you can tell who is there who, that's going to be a good shepherd when you know that they've already been serving in the past. Oftentimes, we would let people that go up and preach, they've, done, they've preached in the past. We let people lead small groups because they led small groups in the past. It has nothing to do with their title, but rather the title affirms who they are. A person, doesn't, a person is not placed in position of leadership to prove that they're faithful, rather that they are there because it's an affirmation of who they are. Leadership positions or any type of ministry position you're in is really an affirmation of what you're doing faithful in your life. Notice that uh, Paul describes Timothy like a child serving his father. Timothy is often described as the spiritual son of Paul. Both of them sought to win the loss. Both of them wanted to serve the churches, and both, want, and both of them wanted what's best for the churches that they served at. Earlier on, Paul instructs the Christians to be humble like Christ and to serve the way Christ is served. And both Paul and Timothy are an example of that. Even though Timothy was not an apostle, he became equal to Paul when it comes to being faithful in the ministry. This father and son picture should remind us of the picture that Christ has with the heavenly father. The holy father gave orders to Jesus, who gave the orders to Paul, who gave the order to Timothy. And Timothy submitted to Paul, who submitted to Jesus, who submitted to to the Lord. All that Timothy did was what Paul would have done, which which is what Christ would have done, which is what the father wanted. 1 Corinthians 4, 15 to 17 reads this. For if, you, for if you were to be, have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ I became your father through the gospel. Therefore I exhort you, be imitators of me. For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And he will remind you of my ways, which are in Christ. Just like Christ submitted to the will of the Father, Timothy submitted to his spiritual father in serving the church. Timothy had the same urgency as Paul. Perhaps there are some people there that may not have the same desire. They're afraid of this long journey from where Rome and where Paul was to the Philippine church. There was a long distance. There's always that possibility that if they go on this trip that they will not make it back alive. But Timothy was willing to risk his life for them because he cared and loved Paul and the church. Verse 23 to 24. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. Uh, For whatever reason, Paul needed Timothy to stay just for a little while. And again, when we see later in Acts, he does get get released. But at the time of the writing of his letter, he did not know. It was unknown why Paul needed needed Timothy to be kept a little longer. Uh, We know that there is some hindrance, and he wants 
to serve this church. The willingness to go is not just for it's not just Timothy's desire, but Paul's also. Paul had a, had a heart for these people, and he couldn't go yet, so he just had to send someone else, to send someone else in his place, and which leads to our second point: the second ordinary servant that God uses mightily is Epaphroditus. Paul sends Epaphroditus to go in his place to encourage this church. The second ordinary servant is Epaphroditus, verse 25. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and my fellow worker, my fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need. Again, Paul wanted to go, but couldn't due to his imprisonment. Timothy couldn't go yet because he was ministering to Paul. So they sent Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus is interesting. Uh, his name, uh, a lot of us when we read, we just kind of overlook it. But his name is unique because his name means love for Aphrodite. Aphrodite is a Greek god who is the daughter of Venus, who is the, and Venus is the daughter of Zeus. So, he, so Epaphrodite is the granddaughter of Zeus. And his name is named love for Aphrodite, which is a pagan name with a pagan history. It was common at that time to name your kids after your culture or, or the religion that you're part of. This means that Epaphroditus grew up in a non-Christian background, which is the opposite of Timothy. Timothy grew up in, with Christian background and knowledge, whereas Epaphroditus did not. Epaphroditus didn't have anyone in his family that, that, that taught him the word of God at a young age. Epaphroditus' name should make a person at a time think of a particular ethnicity, culture, and religion. It's like when, if I say the name Joseph Smith, you think of a particular ethnicity, culture, and religion. If I say Gandhi, you think of a particular ethnicity, culture, and religion. If I said Muhammad, you think of a certain ethnicity, culture, and religion. And that's the same way for Epaphroditus. When you see that name, you don't think Christian. You don't think faithful minister of Christ. But yet, that's who, that, yet in church history, we see that many people start naming their kids after Epaphroditus, not because of the Greek gods, but they named their kids after Epaphroditus to show that they're paying homage to this person, paying homage to God's faithfulness by using this individual to minister and, and to love the Lord. This person was, uh, this person was a person who gave, who's willing to risk his life for the glory of God. In a sense, it seems like the Christian almost redeemed this name from the culture. And this is because of his faithfulness. Because of his faithfulness, the Lord was able to use him mightily, and even people down in church history would, would name their kids after this. And this should be encouragement to all of us. Because God can use people that grew up in a Christian home and also those who did not grow, in a, well, grow up in a Christian home. I think sometimes there's that tendency to think, oh, I, uh, I can't serve because I didn't grow up in Nawana or I didn't have uh, Bible-believing parents. Uh, well, the Lord you, can use you. God doesn't care about what you did in the past or who you were, but what you're doing right now for him. God doesn't just use missionary kids or pastor's kids or elder's kids that grew up in the church. They use who, he, God uses whoever they're faithful to in this moment. God is not impressed with who you were, but who you are now in Christ. God wants to just use faithful men and women of our church. Look at how Paul describes the faithfulness of Epaphroditus. He calls him brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier. 
Uh, he calls them brother in the sense that they are united together in Christ. They're both believers. He calls them fellow worker, that they're laboring together, that they're doing the task of ministry together. He calls them a fellow soldier. They're in a spiritual warfare together. And all the, the, the difficulties of war, he, of, of ministry, he understands it. Epaphroditus is someone who's, who's is, is like someone that's wounded in arms. He's also described as a messenger and minister from the church. He was sent by the church to serve Paul, and now Paul's going to send him back to minister to the church. This word minister, uh, it's a, it has a spiritual connotation. It, has a, a con, it should give you the connotation of, of like a priest. Um, Paul's saying that even in times of desperate need, the church acted as an agent of God to minister to Paul and all of his needs. Back then, in the time of Paul, prison was not like it is now. It's exponentially worse. Uh, when Randy Patton was here, a few of us took him on a tour of San Francisco, and one of the places we took him to was Alcatraz. It's not ideal to take a, a guest speaker to prison, but it's something that we thought would be interesting. And I remember when we were going to the boat around Alcatraz, they told us in the little speaker, the little intercom thing, about the, the dimensions of the prison cells. It's about the size of the length of this pulpit, and it probably goes back to maybe halfway to where the wall is. The only thing that's there is a bed and a toilet, and that's all. And there's no light. They just leave them there, and then if, food, if they need food, they just give them food from maybe sliding under the door. That's way better compared to what Paul has. Back then, when Paul was in jail, or anyone that was in jail, the only way that they can get food or sustenance is from people outside giving them food. So if you were in prison and no one knew that you were there, you were, you're, you're doomed. You're doomed. You're going to die. Uh, but, but, the, but the church knew. Philippians knew that Paul was in prison and they wanted him to continue his ministry. So they sent Epaphroditus and a group of people to, to, to provide for Paul. And yet in all of these descriptions of Epaphroditus, brother, worker, soldier, messenger, and minister, in all of these attributes, Paul shows exactly how he views gospel ministry. Those that are in the faith, they should have all of these. Either, this is either something that we are or something that we need to be. If you are as a believer, then you are a brother and sister of the faith. If you are striving to serve alongside other Christians, you are a, a worker of the faith. If you're being persecuted uh, for your faith alongside others, if you are a fellow soldier if you're out declaring God's word to people, whether speaking in truth to correct them or encouraging, you are a messenger of God. And if you are there to meet the needs of saints, you are a minister of the Lord. If you look at these, which one of them, which one of these characteristics are things that we need to work on? Look back at the text and you can see how Epaphroditus demonstrated all these attributes. Verse 26. Because he was longing because he was longing for you all, and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. Epaphroditus wanted to go back because he had a loyal, because he longed for them, and they heard that he was sick, and they and they, they wanted to know if he made it. What likely happened was Epaphroditus went with a group of people. They left Philippi, and when they got to the the Roman where Paul was, at some point he got sick, and he wasn't able to journey back. So they left Epaphroditus there, and then the, the rest of the team went back, and they told the church, hey, Epaphroditus might not make it, because when we left him, he was sick. And yet, we know that uh, in verse 27 that he actually didn't die. Verse, 
verse 27. For indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, not only on him, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Paul explains that God demonstrated mercy to Epaphroditus. Paul showed mercy to him, Epaphroditus, Paul, and the church. It's unknown what the sickness was, only that they, that they had a deep concern that he might not make it. Paul assures them that Epaphroditus has survived and that he's okay. Paul knew that Epaphroditus' survival was an act of mercy from the Lord. Had Epaphroditus died, though, that yes, they would rejoice that he's in heaven, but yet they would have filled great sorrow because many people loved Epaphroditus. Paul's care for the church is what compels Paul to send Epaphroditus back. Verse 28. Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly so that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less concerned about you. Paul sends him back so the church can rejoice and be encouraged and strengthened. Paul knew, Paul knew that this church needed encouragement. They were discouraged about the fact that his, their, their beloved member of church might die. And so he's like, hey, go back and encourage them. This is exactly what Paul is like. He cared for those who were suffering, and he wept with those who weep. He rejoiced with those who rejoiced. Paul, Timothy, and Paphroditus were all other-focused. They saw the needs of others as more important than their own, which is what we need to be as well. You know, we need to focus on others, even in times of difficulty. Paul here, even though he was in prison, and prison was not easy, yet he, even though he was suffering, he still cared about the church. And so much, so, so, so much, and so are we when we come to ministry, that even though the things are difficult for us, we need to be focused on others as well. Not to say that our needs shouldn't be met, but that we should always be outward focused. Verse 29 to 30. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was sufficient in your service to me. Paul sent him back and wants the church to hold people like him in high regard. This isn't to say that they wanted to diminish God's glory. This isn't to say that they wanted to to elevate a human being. Rather, Paul wants him to elevate him so that people can see God's faithfulness in his life. When you see Epaphroditus, it's supposed to make you realize how gracious our God is. And Paul wanted them to see, wanted to use Epaphroditus as a symbol of God's faithfulness in this individual's life. All of these men knew that living and risking their life for Christ is worth, is worth it. You notice this last phrase in verse 30, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service. To me, this isn't to say that the gift that the, the, the church gave them was, was deficient or that it was lacking. Rather, it was not complete until he received the gift. Now that we've seen these two faithful, ordinary servants, let's take some time to see what the ordinary Christ-like characteristic that they exhibit. If we as a church want to be used by God in an extraordinary way, we're going to have to be faithful in, in ordinary things. And I'm going to look over six characteristics. We're, we're going to look at six characteristics that we must have if God has used us in an extraordinary way. During my studies, I came up with about 17 or so, but I'm only going to go over six. Because if I went over 17, you guys are going to leave at some point because you guys are hungry, and I can understand that. But I'm going to just go over six of them. 
six, six characteristics that we can just do some self-evaluation on. And also, before I start on these six, I do want to say that I know that this church, there are some that have, will have all six. There's some people in this church will have all six characteristics. And I will say, excel still more. Continue doing that. Continue to be faithful. And for some of us, we might have five of them, four of them, or maybe even none of them. In some cases, if that is you, I would ask that you just pray to the Lord for grace so that he can mature you and grow you in this area. This is just a time for us to do some self-evaluation. With that said, here's six characteristics we need, six ordinary characteristics that we need to be used by God in an extraordinary way. The very first one is to evangelize diligently. We're to evangelize diligently. You notice in verse 22 that Paul talked about the furtherance of the gospel. These saints in the text understood the urgency in evangelizing to those who don't know Christ. They all had the same goal in mind. No matter the ministry, they always had the... the, the they always had one objective, and that is to make disciples of all nations. They had a pinpoint focus on winning the lost to Christ. They all had the same passion to declare the good news to the world. It's a mission for all Christians to reach the lost. Their mission, here in the text, is our mission. Their calling is also our calling, and their commission is also our commission. We're all called to win the lost. Why? Why are we called to do that? Why is that the main objective for Christians? It's because our God is a God that saves. Second Peter 3.9 tells us that our God does not delight and he, wishes, he doesn't delight for the wicked to perish. And he's patient towards those that are non-believers so that they can come to repentance. So they can know who he is. And although that is a warning for non-Christians, that should be also a wake-up call for us. That the reason why our loved ones and our friends and our co-workers are not dead this moment is because God's giving us an opportunity to share the gospel with them. We should be mindful uh, with, of those, that are not, those who do not know Christ in our life. That we will want them to. We want to warn them of the wrath that is to come. God is patient, but his patience is limited to this life. And we need to be a good steward of that, of the time that we have with our non-believing friends and family and neighbors. God is giving non-believers time to repent. He's giving us opportunity, giving us time to witness to them. We must see the urgency in evangelism. Christ came for that reason, did he not? He came to call people to repentance. He came to warn them to escape the judgment that is at hand. My question is, in our lives, are there people that we are praying for? Are, there, are we asking God for opportunities to share the gospel? Paul did this in Colossians 4, 3. Colossians 4, 3 reads, Praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mysteries of Christ. Even the apostle had to pray for opportunities to share the gospel. And so are we. We need to pray for opportunities to share the gospel with those in our lives. So how are we in terms of fulfilling the Great Commission? Not only do we need to evangelize diligently, but we also need to disciple faithfully. Not only do we need to evangelize diligently, we need to disciple faithfully. Our second characteristic is that we need to disciple faithfully. Those in the life of Timothy and Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus grew up in this church. Paul knew them, knew him specifically. He trained him up. The, probably the reason why he was willing to risk his life because Epaphroditus understood the urgency and the need, and he knew that okay, I have 
a desire to serve, and this is what, how I'm going to serve. And we know Timothy uh, was someone that Paul trained up. 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul writes to Timothy, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul trained them to go and make disciples. He invested in them. He took time and, and energy and poured into their lives. Again, he's following the example of Christ. Christ did this first. He had his 12 disciples. He ministered to them. He spent three years pouring his life onto the 12 disciples. And over time, when he ascended into heaven, uh, he gave them the Holy Spirit, and they were supposed to go and make disciples of all nations. And then they invested in others, and they invested in others. And now we are that we are the recipients of faithful discipleship. People before us have shared and poured their lives into us so that we can be more and more like Christ. If God is to use us mightily, we must be willing to invest in others and also be invested in. For those who are older in the faith, and I'm not talking about age, I'm just talking about spiritual maturity. If you are spiritually mature, are there younger people that you're pouring into? If you're younger in the faith, are there people that are pouring into you? For those who are older, there are younger saints that you, did, that you need to pour into. And for those who are younger, there are many things that you can learn from an older saint. The most basic principle for discipleship is this. Find someone older in the faith and ask them to pour into your life. And find someone younger in the faith and pour into their life. That's just the the cycle of discipleship. You're you're being poured into and you pour out into other people. We all, as Christians, have a responsibility to train up the next generation of Christians. This isn't just a New Testament concept. This is all the way back in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 6, the Jews were instructed to give, to train their kids, and they're supposed to train their kids. They're supposed to teach the law of God to their, to their, their kids, and they're supposed to pass it on to the next generation. All the things that we've learned from sermons and Bible studies, life experiences, lectures, books, all the things that we've learned, all the things that God has given us to understand, we are not supposed to squander it. We're supposed to entrust these to other and younger, to younger believers. We're to train and be trained. For some that are older in the faith and are not uh, interested in pouring into the younger believer, my question is, why not? Is it because it takes effort? It requires patience? These things, is it because it takes time? Well, we need to repent of that. If you think in that way, you need to repent of those things because you've been given much and as much is expected of you. If you were to die today, how many spiritual children can you say that you trained up in your lifetime? For those who are not being discipled, my question also to you is, why not? Is it because you don't want to be told, or you don't want to be corrected? You, you know there are areas in your life that, you, that it goes against Scripture. You don't want people to find out. In that case, you also need to repent of your pride and know that the reason why you're not growing in the faith is because of your own sin and because of your own pride. And in both cases, whether you're uh, for if a mature believer doesn't want to disciple a younger believer or a younger believer doesn't want to be discipled by an older believer, the reason why that doesn't happen is because of pride. And Scripture tells us that pride comes before the fall. If you want to mature in the faith, you need to do discipleship. Discipleship is how the church grows. I'm not talking about numeric growth. I'm talking about spiritual growth. It's not about programs. 
but about developing a relationship with people, developing a discipleship relationship, to be intentional with our, with our meetups and, and our hangouts. Christ can use us mightily in the church when we disciple one another to be more like Christ. Not only do we need to evangelize diligently and disciple faithfully, but we also need to sacrifice persistently. We also need to sacrifice persistently. You notice in verse 25 that Paul thought it was necessary to send Epaphroditus, and the reason that was so is because he is not that he doesn't enjoy the fellowship with, with Epaphroditus, but that he, he knew that the other church needed Epaphroditus more than he needed Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus, he's like, oh, I don't want to journey. He probably thought in a fleshly sense, oh, I don't want to journey back. I almost died the first time. But yet he was willing to do so because he knew that it, it benefited the church more. He was willing to make the sacrifice. All three of them understood the needs of others, and they're willing to make sacrifices for the others. The Philippian church knew of Paul's need, and they gave him a gift to him. And Paul knew their need, and he sends Epaphroditus back. Sacrifice is not true sacrifice if it doesn't cost us anything. In ministry, it will cost you. It will, it will cost you. And the most basic thing that it will cost you is time. When you invest in other people, when you're willing to sacrifice for other people, you are taking time to serve them. For some, it is time. For others, money and whatever it may be. True sacrifice will take something from you. And as Christians, we should be willing to do that. As Christians, we should be willing to sacrifice our entire life for others because Christ did that for us. Christ came and sacrificed his life for us so that we can be reconciled to him. We can be reconciled to God. It is in light of Christ's sacrifice that we should be willing to sacrifice for others joyfully. Jesus saw and knew our greatest need was to be made right with God, and Christ came and sacrificed his own life. And Christ even said that there is no greater love than for us to lay down our life for our, for our brothers, for those that we claim that we love. And we're called to do that. We're called to be willing to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. Now, in a, in a, in a normal sense, people aren't going to ask you, hey, can you give me your life? Generally, people, when they ask for help or they are in need, it's something way smaller in the grand scheme of things. They're not that bad. But, we're, but we should have a heart to be willing to do those things. We should have a heart to sacrifice for others. Let me ask, in what ways can we make sacrifices for those in our lives? What type of discomfort are we willing to put up with for the benefit of someone else? If Christ sacrificed for us, shouldn't we be willing to sacrifice for others? Not only do we need to evangelize diligently, disciple faithfully, sacrifice persistently, but we also need to encourage consistently. We need to encourage consistently. Notice in verse 19 uh, that he was hoping to send to me so I would also be encouraged when I learn of your condition. And later on, he wanted to send the Epaphrodites to encourage the church. Uh, these men went back and forth with the purpose of encouraging one another. The church sent Epaphrodites to, to encourage Paul, and Paul sends it back to encourage the church. They had a deep love for one another and wanted to encourage one another. Life is filled with trials. And oftentimes, people in the church and outside the church are hurting and need desperate encouragement. And they need people to encourage them during difficult times. Sometimes these trials are financial. Sometimes these are 
health-related, sometimes they're family, these are wor- or sometimes work-related. Whatever it may be, we're called to encourage. Living in a fallen world requires us to be encouraged and to encourage others as well. Living in a fallen world requires us to, incur- to be encouraged and encourage others as well. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 reads, Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Hebrews 10.25 reads that we're called not forsaking our own assembling together as in the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The reason why we go to church, the reason why we have Bible studies, the reason why we have different fellowship groups, the intent is to encourage. Because life is hard. And if we keep focusing on the things that are in this life, we're not focusing on the things that is above. We're not focusing on heavenly things. We need encouragement for one another. We need to encourage one another because life is difficult. And Jesus is that great encourager. We're following the model of Christ here. Jesus knew when he, before he uh, died, he knew that the disciples would be discouraged. He knew that people were going to afflict him. But yet God promised him that he was preparing a place for them in heaven. God's making them look forward to eternity. That this life, no matter how much you're suffering in this life, is only limited to this life. And Christ did that. He told his apostle to not be afraid, to not worry, to, to cast, his, cast their burdens upon the Lord. Even in the Great Commission, Christ told them to make disciples of all nations, for he will be with, you, with us until the end of the age. Yes, the struggles in this life are real, but they are limited, and we need to encourage one another. I wonder how many of us will be willing to encourage one another. I mean, if Christ came from heaven to encourage us, how many of us are willing to just go across the aisle to encourage a brother and sister, or perhaps maybe just a few feet away from us? How far are we willing to go to encourage? If God was willing to come from heaven to earth, why aren't we willing to encourage those that are in close proximity to us? How often in our conversations are they filled with encouragement? How often in our conversation do we do we discourage one another by, by slandering one another? How often do we get discouraged of, uh, discouraging to one another when we, when we aren't repentant of our sin? We are called to encourage one another so that we can focus on things that actually matter. The church can be used by God mightily if we are people that are constantly encouraging one another and continue encouraging one to strive forward. I mean, that's what we do with biblical counseling. Our hope here is that our church can offer hope. When we offer hope to people, that encourages them, encourages one another to look towards the heavenly things, to respond in, the, respond in a Christ-like way in light of eternity. We need to consistently encourage one another with biblical truth so that we can be strengthened and be faithful until the end. Not only do we need to be Evangelizing diligently, disciple faithfully, sacrifice persistently, and encourage uh, consistently. We also need to care genuinely. We need to care genuinely. Our fifth point is that we need to care genuinely. Notice that back in this text, 
that they cared for one another, they had this deep burden for one another. All of these men have, to, have had to care for, the, them, for each other and the church. It was this love that they have for Christ that drives them to care for each other. Last month, Pastor Roger talked about that, that when you understand God's love for you, that's why you would love one another. That's why you would care for each other. This is, this is again, another uh, characteristic of Christ. When During Christ's uh, time on earth, he was interrupted co- multiple times, constantly. He, was going, he wants to go from point A to point B, but before he gets to point B, there was every, there's all these two people that were just sick, that were demonically possessed, that were hungry, that were hurting, and yet... Christ made time for everyone. He cared for them. He saw their hurt, and he was willing to show and demonstrate care for them. And his greatest act of, of care is the cross. Our greatest burden is sin, and Christ tells us to go to him, and, and he, will, he will carry our burdens. When we, when we confess our sin to him, that burden is lifted. And he does that because he does care for us. Jesus cares about those who are suffering and he invites all those who are suffering to go to him for relief. If God is to use this church mightily, if God wants to use this church in, a, in an extraordinary way, we need to have a genuine care for those who are hurting. In the last three months I've been here, uh, there has been funeral after funeral after funeral, and natural disasters after natural disasters after natural disasters. And it, it was great joy for me in the last three months to see how so many of you are willing to come alongside those who've lost family members. It was, it's, it's amazing to see how the church came together to love on those who'd lost a family member or loved one. Even with the, all the natural catastrophes, last month there was that hurricane, and our church had a love offering for the people that are hurting. Even right now, there's a box right outside uh, with, uh, that it's, it's, we're basically accepting an offering for those who are suffering and that were afflicted by the fires. This isn't a promo for that, but it just shows me that our church has a genuine care for those that are hurting. And I pray and hope that our church will continue to have a soft spot for those that are afflicted. It is incredibly encouraging to see, and I pray that we can continue to do so. Our church can be used by God mightily if, our tes- if the testimony of our church is that we're willing to meet the needs of others. If, we, if, we, if people can see our lives, they're like, oh, this church is a ca- very caring church. They care for my soul and others. That's what I hope our church would be, that our church will continue doing these things so people will know us by our love for the Lord and it's demonstrated to our love for others. The last ordinary characteristic we must have to be used by God in an extraordinary way is suffer corporately. We're called to suffer corporately. These saints, all three of them, and the church in Philippi, they all knew each other and they knew each other's concerns, they knew each other's condition, and they were willing to, 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 to weep with those that weep. They all knew each other's pain and met them practically. Their genuine love for each other made them sensitive towards each other's suffering. And you understand, when you look at the life of Christ, Jesus felt compassion. He felt pain. He knew, he, our God is not like a God that has no emotions, like he's some robot. God has, he feels, he, he can get jealous, he gets... He feels pain when we feel pain. He understands our pain. And Jesus lived life for us. He understood the temptations and the sufferings of life. But yet, so he understands. He can sympathize with us. And yet we are called to be like Christ in that way. We should show a genuine care for those who are hurting. We should 
we should weep with those who weep. When we see those in pain, we must also feel, and feel pain. We must, we must be compassionate toward those. And we care for others, and we identify with others in pain because Christ was, was and is like that. We're all members of one body, and when one part of the body is hurt, we should all feel it. And again, mentioning earlier with the funerals, we, we, we are like that. You guys are doing well in this, in this area. There are those who are hurting. We get emails of people that have been, that left this life, and then there's those who are coming alongside those. And I would encourage you, and for those who are suffering now, that we're suffering with you now. I pray that our church will be a church that knows how to suffer together as a corporate body, that we care for those that are hurting. If you look at all six of these characteristics, it's not hard to imagine that what I'm saying is that we just need to be more like Christ. If God was to use us in an extraordinary way, we need to be more like Christ. The catalyst to be used by God mightily is simply to be like Christ. If we want to be unique in this world, we need to evangelize, we need to disciple, we need to sacrifice, we need to encourage, we need to care, and we need to suffer. These are some of the ordinary things that we need to work on and need to grow on or continue to do so that, the world, so that the people in San Francisco will know our church. Imagine the testimony of our church. We do all six of these things well. There's about 300 of us here at the church. Imagine the testimony. If the, if the people around us in our neighborhoods and all the streets and avenues, they knew our, if they knew our church as that evangelizing church, that, oh, that's a church where there's always people sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Oh, you came to know Christ? How? Did, how? Was that the Bible? Yeah, yeah, that's how I came to know the Lord too. Imagine if that is our testimony, that we are a group of people that love the lost, that we're just known for our evangelism. Or what about if our church was known for encouraging one another? That if I need some sort of spiritual need, that I know where to go. That I know that this building, there are people here that are willing to counsel me and pour their life from the scriptures into my life so that I can be encouraged. Imagine if our church is known for the church that cares. That not one person in our church, not one member of our church's need is not met. That when, if you are part of our, if you're a believer and you're part of our body, that we care for you that we're willing to sacrifice for you. Imagine if our church is known as that weeping church. Occasionally, everyone's sad, and it's because there's someone in our church that's hurting, that this church suffers together, that no one suffers alone. Imagine that if, that, if these were just some of our testimonies. If we were known as that church that is caring, that suffers, that encourages, that sacrifices, and to make disciples, and to evangelize. This is my hope. This is my hope for us of Bible. I trust that if we do these six characteristics, that we will, and if we practice them consistently and well, that the Lord will continue to grow us and mature us and ultimately use us for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for the example that you demonstrated us in the life of Christ. Lord, we want to be a people that magnifies your glory by our faithfulness in living a life that reflects your son. But we ask for grace because we know that it is impossible to do things on our own. We ask you to give us wisdom and even opportunity to, to evangelize, to care, to, even, to suffer alongside, to disciple, 
all these things that we've learned today, may you give us grace and opportunity to do those things. Lord, we have been given much in this life, and you have given us so much grace and mercy, and may we um, cherish you more because of it. And may your word be our guide as we live our life in a way that magnifies who you are, and so the world can see your great love for us. Thank you for your word, and I pray that we can honor you today and the rest of the week. Your son's precious name, amen.